1: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feldman.
2: I'm Eleanor Cummins. I'm Claire Maldarelli.
1: So what we do on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is uh, go around, pitch a little tease of the weirdest fact we've picked up, and then I'll agree which one we think is just so interesting that we absolutely have to hear more. We'll all spin our little science yarns, and then at the end of the episode, we'll reconvene to decide which was, in fact, the weirdest thing we learned this week. And then you can all disagree with us on Twitter, and it'll be super fun. I will uh, start off this week Mine is about an interspecies adoption. That's it, that's the tease.
2: All right, I'm just gonna say, like, Truman Show-ish. Ooh. First celebrity diet.
1: Oh, oh my goodness. Those both sound so good, mine is stupid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think celebrities always go first. Yeah, that's true. That's
1: the perk of being a celebrity.
3: (laughs) Okay, cool, I win. So this week I was reporting a story on all of these different lifestyle habits that you can have that make you live longer. Um, and I'm also simultaneously reporting this longer story about diets and all the dangers of them and I went down this rabbit hole about, I was trying to figure out who was the first celebrity dieter and I think I found him. Um, It was Lord Byron who lived from, hold on, I need my cheat sheet, 1788 till 1824. And if you don't know and I didn't know, he was this um, British poet who was like one of the big romantic poets at the time. He's like very well known. Um, And he also was in the uh, Greek War for Independence and he died of sepsis at the age of 36, but his whole life he was obsessed with his figure, he was very vain, and uh, (laughs) had this like ginormous fear of becoming obese, Um, and so while he was at Cambridge, he subsisted on a diet of essentially salt and vinegar, our version of salt and vinegar chips, which is potatoes (laughs) and vinegar, or, soda, crackers, and water.
1: Wait, that sounds well, great. Yeah. <laughs> was that supposed to be like healthy? Or? And,
3: um not, not healthy. I think he wasn't <laughs> really going for health, he was just going for slimness. Um, so the idea, which we actually wrote about, um, Sarah Chodash, one of our other science writers wrote about the apple cider vinegar diet mm. and it's like play in weight loss. And it really has no scientific basis. The only, there's like a few mouse studies that showed that people lost weight on, or that the mice lost weight on these diets, but no human studies have showed this, even though people today still are obsessed with this apple cider vinegar diet, and it was all started by Lord Byron. And the sad thing is that because people were so, he was like this iconic figure at the time, so all these other poets were like, this is the diet for me, (laughs) and so they all did it too, and so that was like the start of celebrity dieting, and I think it's terrible, and we should never take advice from celebrities like, about our health,
1: wow! That's I have so many, have so many <laughs> questions. First off, so was it just other poets that were like, "This is the diet of a romantic poet," or did some, uh, you know, did some readers at home get yes. on the bandwagon? I
3: really, I really tried to find that answer because that's what I wanted to know, like how far it spread. <laughs> um, but the only thing I could find was that it was other poets. But I like to think that, like, if you know, people loved poets and, like, they were these, like, iconic figures at the time than other, like, normal people did the same.
1: Right. Like, Lord Byron being really into a diet is basically the same as Taylor Swift being really into a diet today. Correct. no difference. (laughs) (laughs) The poets of our time.
3: (laughs) And so, I I feel like how it relates back to this story that I reported this week on like, all these five lifestyle habits. So, they're like, keeping a healthy body weight, eating a high quality diet, abstaining from smoking and exercising um, 30 minutes or more a day. These are all just like, simple, normal, like, normal things that you should do. But why do we, so why do we take advice like (laughs) eating, and dr- or drinking vinegar from celebrities when we have all this like good advice out there from good scientific studies, like why do we do it?
0: Uh,
1: that is the question. Salt yes. and
2: vinegar chips sound so much more appealing than <laughs> exercise. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that is amazing too is like there is this book by Susan Sontag where she talks about sort of like the origin of like our like slimness obsession, mm-hmm. and she like traces it back to tuberculosis, which like a mm-hmm. lot of the same poets of that era were romanticizing because you were literally wasting. Away, and they were like, "How beautiful!" Yes, yeah. that's exactly it. Everyone just yeah. wanted
1: to die exquisitely. at that, time, <laughs> has that gone like away? Had, uh, well, yeah, fair. But yeah, no, it's true that like the the popular um, beauty standard of the day was looking like you never had to do any work, you never had to leave the house, mm-hmm. you were probably dying of consumption, you were
2: glistening from your <laughs> permanent fever.
1: Oh. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> um, that's truly wild. I'm
2: going to get some salt and vinegar chips from the vending machine after this. Oh, you should. I had salt and vinegar chips this week, so I was
3: like, oh, now I'm craving them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we had a story um, a while ago, uh, I think that you edited, Claire, that was about, um, like, can you exist on just one food? And potatoes oh, was Oh, the yeah, example, they right? were,
3: yes. Potatoes are actually, like, they get such a bad rap for being, like, these, like, high-carb foods, but they actually have so many nutrients in them. And technically... Um, I think it was Eleanor, or Eleanor, you're Eleanor, Ellen (laughs) Earhart, who wrote it, and she said, like, yes, you might be able to. You would still... But you would have to eat so many of them (laughs) to get like the proper amount of like calcium and iron and like different nutrients in that it would just be like absurd amount of potatoes to eat. Do potato chips count? Or are they
1: like (laughs) I
3: I think I mean they don't because you need oil to do them, but in my diet book they do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean healthy fats. Healthy Healthy fats. fats. Yeah. Well amazing. I love that. So
3: just, you know, follow your own diet advice. Use common sense.
1: Everything in moderation, yes. including,
3: salt including and vinegar. vinegar yes. <laughs> and too many salt vinegar chips actually, okay, I don't know if anyone has, else has experienced this, but it kind of like destroys my taste buds. Hmm. Like I ate so many this week cuz I just like had them in the house <laughs> and now I can't really like taste anything on the tip of my tongue. Maybe that's the appeal <laughs> of the diet. Right. You're just like,
2: "Oh, that's true." Food is yeah. meaningless now.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to find the poems Lord Byron wrote about... Vinegar chips. <laughs> vinegar chip. <laughs> Because you know what? There may not be any that have survived the ravages of time, but I do have to believe that there were some. We're going to take a quick break to go to the vending machine and get as many salt and vinegar chips as they have, and we'll be right back. Do you wear your pride on your sleeve? Popular Science is partnering
3: with Out and STEM to make limited edition t-shirts with a rainbow PopSci logo. 100% of the profits go to Out in STEM, a nonprofit that empowers the LGBTQ community in science, tech, engineering, and math fields. Scoop one up before they're gone. And share on social with the hashtag SciPride. That's S-C-I-Pride.
1: All right, we're back for more weird facts. Um... Mine is uh, more of a heartwarming tale this week. Uh, less ginger in horses' butts, more um, beautiful alternative family arrangements. Uh, so I-, I edited this story this week about these albatrosses. Um, there are these three species of albatross that you know, mostly live around islands in Japan. And the most endangered species is the short-tailed. There are only around 4,200 of them. Again, mostly around Japan, but a few individuals will show up um, at the uh, this reserve called Midway, which is technically in Hawaii, though it's kind of an unincorporated island, so you know tenuously part of the United States, uh, but you know is uh, U.S. Park Service managed. So. There are a couple of these short-tailed albatross, and there was this one called George, named after Lonesome George, the the Galapagos tortoise, tortoise. who, uh, for those who don't know, uh, died while conservationists were desperately trying to find him someone to mate with. Um, Very Lonesome George was. So they they named the short-tailed albatross Lonesome George, which is rude, but George did finally find a mate after 15 years of trying, her name is Geraldine, and people were very excited. <laughs> Eleanor is losing it over Geraldine. Geraldine. Is a great name. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, that's the fact. Just that the bird is named Geraldine. Sorry, you won. Sorry. Um, scientists were very excited uh, in the fall when they saw them incubating an egg. There have only been three of these birds born on U.S. soil, so they were super psyched to see George finally uh, make a baby. And they were in for a surprise, because uh, a couple months ago, the egg hatched, and everyone thought something was a little odd, but they had to wait about a week for the parents to stop, uh, you know, kind of sitting on the baby so much <laughs> that they couldn't see it. And when they got a good look, they saw it was not a short-tailed albatross. It was a black-footed albatross, what? Uh, which is a much more common bird at that Uh, Reserve, And they don't know how they ended up with this egg. It certainly has happened before, which I can get into a little bit more in a minute. But, you know, they don't know whether they like kind of stole this egg or whether it was abandoned somehow or just got kind of rolled away from its nest. Um, This is like that Angelina Jolie movie, Changeling. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly like Changeling. But so... On the one hand, it's a little disappointing because they thought that this endangered species was starting to thrive on a new island and that maybe they could establish a population there because uh, once these birds pick a place, they don't always go back to where they hatched from. Uh, For Mm -hmm. example, George and Geraldine both came from islands in Japan. Uh, But once they pick a place to nest, they'll come back there every year. So uh, if George and Geraldine were having babies, it would mean a solid chance that we were gonna have short-tailed albatross breeding there. So it's a little disappointing, but uh, the researchers say this is still actually a really good sign for short-tailed conservation because albatross are, like, very bad at successfully reproducing and having eggs. I'm not quite sure why. I think um, it just tends to take them uh, a few tries to get it right. So uh, conservationists are psyched that they have this chance to practice (laughs) on an adopted baby. Uh, So... Everyone is saying that, you know, the fact that they have this black-footed chick that they successfully hatched and presumably, hopefully, will successfully raise. Uh, so far, it's going very well. It's actually the biggest black-footed chick on the island because short-tailed birds are bigger, so they're feeding it bigger portions of food. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> so the chick is getting fat. Aww. But um, Lord Byron is <laughs> like over in his grave. <laughs> um, so... In theory, they're gonna be successful parents and uh, that will give them a really good chance of having their own egg next year and and doing everything right. Um, And in reading about this, uh, one of the most interesting things to me is that there's this whole question of how this black-footed chick is going to behave. Uh, Because hatching and seeing a short-tailed bird in front of you and bonding with that bird as your parent Uh, Is confusing, Uh, And it's possible that the black-footed chick will kind of act more like a short-tailed chick, which in a lot of ways doesn't really matter. They hunt for the same things, they eat the same things, they fly to the same places, uh, but they do these mating dances. And so there's some question of whether the black-footed bird, when it comes time to mate, is going to be more interested in other black-footed birds or short-tailed. It seems like the dances are innate, not learned, but... You know, we're going to find out. Who knows? And there are other hybrids, but they're mostly um, black footed males and then the third albatross species, not the short tailed. So, just kind of an interesting question of like what happens when you have these um, interspecies adoptions and how it changes uh, their outlook for life. It would certainly not be the end of the world if the black footed chick tried to mate with other species. It would probably do just fine. Maybe it'll even have a short tailed hybrid, and that'll be exciting. What if um, it does
2: super well? Like, this is the future of the
1: albatross? <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Also, what's George and Geraldine's baby going to be named? Oh, Lord Byron. Lord Byron. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, no, probably, like, Jeff. Jeffrey. Maybe it's a girl. I don't know. I don't think they know yet. It's still a little little beeb. Um, yeah, so I just think cross species adoption is, is a super cool topic. It probably happens more than we know of. Researchers have like a few ideas for why this might happen. Um, we know that we're all hardwired to protect the young of our own species uh, because there's this need to pass our DNA along even if it's not from our direct descendants. And there are some researchers who think that maybe a lot of species are liable to mistake Uh, creatures of other species for their own or otherwise like not care and just want to care for them because it's better than them making the mistake in the other direction Mm. it's better than risking them occasionally not recognizing their offspring as their own and rejecting them which of course still does happen sometimes in some animals Uh, you know that's why you're like not supposed to touch baby bears because if their moms think they smell wrong they like won't take care of them anymore and the um, birds
3: look really similar, right? Like, they're yeah. just two different colors. Do we know if those birds are colorblind? Because maybe <laughs> they
1: just can't see. It's totally possible that they just <coughs> think that this is their chick. Yeah, um, Yeah. that's another thing, is that sometimes they might just not know. Even when it's very obvious to humans, you know, we don't know how they distinguish from one another. Especially with these animals where the dance is so important when it comes <laughs> time to mate. You know, you it's reasonable to assume that like that's kind of their primary way of telling one species from another and you know when it comes down to trying to figure out who's a member of your own species for the purpose of mating um it becomes really interesting because scientists think that sometimes uh, individuals of other related species will actually seem more attractive because, like for example, the black-footed albatross is smaller than the short-tailed albatross, but let's say that you're in a group where the, uh, the biggest black-footed males are considered the most attractive. So then you might get a black-footed female that sees a short-tailed albatross, which is, of course, bigger than the available black-footed albatross, and so that, to her, is very attractive. Um, so... That does seem to happen in some other species where, like, because the males or females of this related species have, like, plumage that just puts the other birds to shame, you know, to them, it seems like a very logical thing. So, of course, hybrids are all over, interspecies adoptions are all over, and um, animals are great. It's amazing.
2: So, fun. George and Geraldine didn't actually lay their own egg, or is there like their baby is now being <laughs> raised in another oh, yeah. family? Maybe we'll find. Maybe where they'll it meet is. and be friends. Yes. Like on switched to birth. That would be yes. amazing.
1: So, I did find that um, one study of white storks found nest switching in 40% of broods. So, Ooh. like, infants will just actually end up in like like swapping nests all the time just totally arbitrary. Is that just
3: because they can't find home they're like oh this one looks good. Like you know when you like mistake your mom like getting picked up at like preschool (laughs) I was like this is my mom and I was like shoot this isn't my mom.
1: I think that's what happens also that with the storks they think it's because they benefit from longer periods of care so Hmm. the infants might actually like purposefully seek out a nest that's not as far along <laughs> so they can eke out more parental affection. That's so clever, affection. So um, smart. In this case, I mean, certainly they would notice if a short-tailed chick had hatched somewhere off on the island because they're so eager for one of those. So if they laid an egg, it probably died or mm. they lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I'm really curious about how they got the egg. I want to know if there was, like, a throwdown. Was this, like, a baby kidnapping situation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, An albatross we'll, <laughs> Yeah, We'll probably never know. <laughs> we need another break, so we're going to take one. See you soon. It's been scientifically proven that Monday is the worst day of the week, or at least it used to be, because now that's when you can expect new episodes of PopSize, other podcasts Last Week in Tech. Every week, we recap the big technology stories that you may have missed while you were furiously refreshing your Twitter feed, hoping that Elon Musk tweeted something else really ridiculous. You could subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or SoundCloud. Now, back to the weirdest thing I learned this week. All right, we're back, and now it's time for Eleanor's weird fact. All right. So I had a bunch
2: of different ideas this week, and then they all got totally blown up when I found this creepy, creepy fact. It's 1880, and there's this French neurologist, Jules Cotard, and he... Presents a case study, right? So that's like where you know, like researchers and doctors are like, I think that this example of something I observed in the field mm-hmm. is representative of a real phenomenon. I love case studies. Yeah, Same. great source I'm so for weird excited. facts. Absolutely, this is full of case studies. This particular initial case study stars Mademoiselle X, and she believes that she quote had no brain, nerves, chest, or entrails, and was just skin and bones. <laughs> and this was <laughs> the Lord first. <laughs> Honestly, this is the first <laughs> observation of what has become called uh, Catard syndrome, mm. which is mm. the belief that you are dead mm-hmm. and that no one else is like willing to validate that you are actually a skeleton mm. and that you have died. And so I got super obsessed this morning and spent a bunch of time like looking through this. It's also known as walking dead syndrome, naturally, um, and basically... Initially, um, it was talked about as like a a marked tendency to quote deny everything, Mm -hmm. um, which same, Um, (laughs) but it has some other uh, specific characteristics. Um, So people report all different kinds of manner of things. Um, There are a bunch of other case studies. There's one from 2008, for example, where a woman was admitted to a psychiatric unit um, because she not only she was quote complaining that she was dead. (laughs) (laughs) and also she believed that she smelled like rotting flesh and she wanted to be taken to a morgue so that she could be with other dead people oh goodness yeah and so psychologists and psychiatrists and all of these People have had a really hard time figuring out like what's the sort of like underlying um, you know mechanism here like what's causing people to believe that they are dead. It happens every few years. There's like a case study about it, um, and no one is really certain. But it's definitely divided right now between two camps. So some people believe that there might be um, you know an organic cause, which is really interesting. There have been some talk of um, people having these symptoms of like you know catard syndrome um, after like traumatic brain injury. Mm. Um, which is really fascinating. So you know, it's been proposed that it's similar to Capgras illusion, um, which is the idea that everyone you know has been replaced by an actor. Mm. Um, and oh. so that is also something where they've traced that particular Capgras illusion to a lesion in the brain. Mm. And so people have been like, can we find a similar lesion mm-hmm. with catard syndrome that explains why everyone's like, I'm a skeleton and you are lying to me about being alive. Um, but there has been a sort of mixed success with that, so the other idea that's proposed is the sort of like psychiatric one that this is you know a manifestation of some kind of severe um, depression um, or um, delusion, and so I just thought it was so interesting not only that people feel this and that it comes up every once in a while but also that you know. Like, can you imagine, like your mom, like waking up and you having to take her to the hospital because she was like, "I smell like rotting flesh." I like, think I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, and complaining that you're that you're dead and no one will believe you. Um, But anyway, I also then as a result started looking at all of the classifications of delusional disorder um, according to um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And that's also super fascinating. So this would probably be classified as a somatic delusion. So those are like beliefs that are focused on um, your body. Um, But there's also um, nihilistic, which this potentially could be, a nihilistic Mm. delusion, um, which is the kind of conviction that everything Is like, you know, about to totally fall apart, or maybe already has like Mm -hmm. your own body.
1: Where's the lie though?
2: Exactly, (laughs) exactly. I really identify with nihilistic delusion. Um, There's also like erotomaniacs, that's where you think everyone is in love with you.
1: Um, also wears the light (laughs) grandiose that you have
2: exceptional abilities Um, referential which is the idea that everything that's happening is directed at you which Mm -hmm. I find really fascinating sort of like like solipsism like you're the center of the world as well as um, persecutory um, delusion which is that someone's like out to get you Um, and then there's even a further classification which is that they're like delusions. All of them are in two categories: bizarre and non-bizarre. <laughs> and so, bizarre are the ones that like normal people. I'm using serious air quotes here. That the sane psychiatrist they know that that's crazy. Um, but non-bizarre delusions are just ones that could potentially be real. Like that, you know, like you may actually have a case that someone is out to get you. Um, doesn't mean they're not. It doesn't mean they're not. So that is yeah. That's the sort of run down on catard syndrome like this is really bad for hypochondriacs yeah definitely i kind of freaked me out a little bit yeah
1: (laughs) well i know that with um with capgrass uh one of the potential physical reasons for it is that there's a problem in the brain that affects your kind of emotional recognition of people Mm -hmm. so I know some neurologists think that it's because you see the person and you objectively recognize that it looks like and sounds like and feels like your loved one but because you don't feel the way you're used to feeling when you see that person you're not connecting them with the feelings of recognizing a friend it you kind of explain that away by creating this delusion that someone is pretending to be that person. Right. Which really freaks me out that like there could be just such a simple hardwired problem that your brain just creates an elaborate explanation for it that just causes you to spiral into this debilitating delusion. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is how most delusions probably happen, where like you you just feel kind of off and our brains are very good at creating patterns and sense out of justifying mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm.
2: yeah yeah, Capgrass, like as you're saying so they've kind of narrowed that down to this idea that there is like a lesion in the sort of like limbic area of your brain so it's like disconnecting your facial recognition um, kind of abilities from like the rest of your like experience mm-hmm. so
3: yeah it's- have they done any studies or they're just like not enough people who think they're dead to- I
2: think that there are not enough people yeah. to, to think who are like complaining of um, putrefying Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah it's really fascinating too because like there's also been this debate over what's like the proper treatment like when you're Mm -hmm. dealing with somebody like this and so you know who's experiencing something like this and so for a long time they've been like well electroconvulsive therapy is like what you need because like you know it's probably there's something like kind of organic going on and maybe we can like help reset it but there has been some success with just sort of like um, you know like more routine um, uh, medication um, Mm -hmm. you know for various like psychiatric kind of issues um, so it seems like they have lately been able to help people I don't I I think I read that Mademoiselle X ended up dying very tragically because she did not think she needed to eat because she was dead no. so oh yeah that's but rough m- now mm-hmm. it seems like we're definitely able to like at least sort of like I think part of it is giving people some justification right <laughs> like this isn't totally n- like crazy like it's possible that you know there are things going on that are contributing to this as well as like Offering some, um, you know, semblance of a treatment.
1: Yeah, it is. It's really freaky to think about, like how um, tenuous the the mind body connection is. One, the fact I was thinking about using this week that I decided was bonus to, fact <laughs> on the horizon. <laughs> it this doesn't count morbid. in the competition, though. No, no, it doesn't. This is this is part of Eleanor's story. Uh, but I was talking to a friend who's doing a thesis on, I think, body identity integrity disorder can't remember if integrity and identity are switched but uh, it's the disorder that makes you believe that you one of your limbs should not actually be part of your body so uh, these are the people who end up getting voluntary amputations and they do actually receive those amputations because otherwise they are prone to doing very dangerous and terrible things to themselves and it's a really serious disorder and some of the most interesting research on it is looking at possible neurological differences Um, it's a small area of study but it seems like there is probably something going on in the parietal lobe of people who have this and uh, their parietal lobe does not activate in the same way when you touch the limb that they feel doesn't belong to them so there is actually something that doesn't happen in their brain that's supposed to happen so they Literally, do not recognize it as part of their body. In like the spatial awareness of themselves.
2: Right. Which There's of course like, is
1: very distressing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't have like the
2: same sense of like physical like possession of the right. limb. They can feel you
1: touching it, but as though that they were does, watching it or that something. That does not feel like it is within the bounds of their body. Which you know it makes perfect sense that that's incredibly upsetting. Yeah. So anyway, the the whole mind body connection, brains are terrifying totally
3: and also just like some of these delusions right seem so reasonable like yeah, I once you understand like the mechanism behind it it's so reasonable yeah I wish that we knew more about the brain that we could
2: yeah offer some like people who are experiencing such distressing kind of things like more an explanation for it yeah, yeah. definitely and then also though like I would like some more clear lines about like <laughs> why I'm not gonna fall into one of these delusions <laughs> like some people like you're reading them and like you kind of like get the rationale like how far away are any of us from being like everything
1: is about me or like there's no hope right well that's when you were reading the list of delusions I was like oh god how maybe I have that to what extent is that normal because of course we all have moments Mm -hmm. of like feeling like everything's out to get us feeling like everyone loves us I don't know I feel like everybody has days and moments yeah. when they are slightly delusional about how much they are the center of the universe. So <laughs> I think it, it is like a little bit um, a little bit freaky.
2: Yeah, as long as you know you're not a skeleton, I think <laughs> you're good, at least for
1: this syndrome. All right, so uh, what do we think is, is the weirdest thing we learned this week? I'm going to vote for Celebrity Diet. I'm, I may be biased because I have already gone way too deep down the weird brain rabbit hole. The Lord Byron diet surprised and delighted me. I'm with you
3: for sure. Yeah. I still think that just the idea that you could think that you're dead surprised me. So I'm going (laughs) with yours. Thank you. It's like, I feel like I'm an extreme hypochondriac and I have never thought I was dead. You know, you're alive. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) That's like, my hypochondria comes from knowing just how alive I am and how (laughs) tenuous that is.
1: (laughs) But yeah I vote I vote for Lord Byron <laughs> alright well the weirdest thing I learned this week is a popular science podcast subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast or SoundCloud and if you like us please rate and review us on iTunes you can buy our merch including our limited edition SciPride t-shirt and the weirdest thing I learned this week tote bags at popsy.threadless.com. our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden our editors are Jessica Bodie and Jason Letterman if you have questions, suggestions or weird stories to share tweet us at weirdest underscore thick.